turn in your Bible tonight to one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. It's also the shortest verse in the Bible. I wonder if there's anybody under 12 years old here tonight that can tell me where that verse is found. John 11:35. Turning your Bible to John 11:35. The shortest verse in the Bible. And I want to speak tonight on that subject. What does the Bible teach about death? Based on this verse of Scripture, John eleven thirty five. 35. Now this is hard on your intellect tonight, but I'd like to ask everybody here to read that verse with me. And then we want to quote it. John eleven thirty five. 35, will you say it or read it with me? Jesus Christ. That's it. That's as short as you can get. Let's do it one more time. Jesus where is it found? All right, we all know where it's found. Now that's part of a larger story. I want to talk about it tonight. May we pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful verse, the wonderful book, and the great truth that is taught in this book. Open our hearts to understand what God is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus had a home that he loved to go to. Even though he was homeless, the cattle had a place to place their head, but Jesus had no home. And yet, the Lord seemed to surround him while he was here with those who loved him. A strange group of the ones that loved him. Some of them were harlots, publicans. Those who were the religious leaders looked down their nose at those who loved Jesus, and they called them publicans and sinners. There was a home at Bethany, just around the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, where Jesus used to love to go. It was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The Lord loved that home. And he loved those three, and they loved him so much. One day the Lord was off preaching on the other side of the Jordan River. And word came that Lazarus was sick. And Jesus kept on preaching and teaching. He didn't go immediately. Sometimes people wonder why the preacher doesn't always go immediately when he receives a call. Well, it's very possible that Jesus received a number of calls at that moment, and that happens sometimes. Or perhaps the Lord felt that what he was doing was exceedingly important over in Idumea. Or, more probably, he did this for the glory of God to be revealed. He delayed his going. Soon the word came that Lazarus is dead. Now, Jesus said to the disciples a very important theological statement. Well, to remember it. He said, Lazarus is asleep. Now, the disciples took that literally. Well, they said, Lord, uh, it's good that he sleeps. He's been awfully sick, and maybe if he's sleeping, he'll get well from this sickness. For Jesus had said, Lazarus is asleep. Let's go wake him. <laughs> and they can you imagine the disciples rebuking Jesus? It was sort of like that, though. 
They were saying, now, Lord, you, you know, surely you know, you've been around, you know that if a person sleeps, you'll get well. Uh, let's not go wake him, let's not disturb him. And then Jesus had to plainly say, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes, so you can see the glory of God. And so they arose and came to the little town of Bethany. Some of you in this room have been to Bethany. And when he got to the edge of the town, one of the sisters ran out to the edge of town and said, Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Jesus said, your brother will live again. Oh, she said, I know he'll live in the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, why, yes, Lord, I believe. And the Lord said, take me where you have laid him. And they took the Lord Jesus out to the Bethany graveyard where Lazarus had been laid four days before that. He had been dead four days. And the Bible says that Jesus stood there and there were mourners in those days that mourned. I suppose when Mary and Martha went out to the grave, some of their friends said, well, they're going out to weep by the grave. We'll go with them. And they all gathered there at Bethany Graveyard. And the Bible says in John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. I'm so glad that's in the Bible. Jesus weeps with those who weep. We ought never to be ashamed of our tears, for tears are often the telescopes through which we can see far into glory, far into God's purpose and plan for our lives and for the future. And Jesus wept. Some have conjectured as to why Jesus wept. Some have said, well, he wept because of the compassion he had for Mary and Martha. And I think that's true. I'm sure the Lord had compassion for Mary and Martha. There has never been a friend like Jesus. There's never been anybody that would weep with you when you weep like Jesus does. And stand there when you're going through an hour of trial that you feel like there's no way on earth you can take it. And Jesus stands there with you. Jesus wept. There are others who say, well, maybe Jesus wept because of the hardness of the heart of those who stood around there. And there certainly were people with hard hearts. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't believe. They had nothing to do with eternity. They didn't believe in Jesus. They thought he was an imposter and a fake. And there are people today who like that. They say when you die, you're dead like a horse or a cat or a cow. That's all there is to you. If you have not met those kind of people, you will meet them. They're everywhere. They say it doesn't make any difference. Throw me in a ground, burn me up, cremate me. It doesn't make any difference what you do with me when I'm dead. I believe there's a Christian view of burial. That doesn't mean that God has any hard time creating a new body out of dust. God knows where all the particles are. But there are some who said, Lazarus is gone. There's not going to be anything more to him. This is sentimental, standing around here in a graveyard weeping. And Jesus wept over the hardness of their hearts. I think there are some others that say Jesus wept because 
he knew in a little while he was going to bring Lazarus back to this old earth filled with sin and greed and heartache. And Lazarus is going to have to endure it again. For you see, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, when death comes and they step beyond that precipice of death, they go into God's wonderful place, if they're saved, called heaven. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas, representing the doubters of this earth, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more sorrow, neither sickness nor pain. And the last enemy, death, would have been put away forever. And we'll be with God. Someday the silver cord will break. And I no more as now shall sing, but oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of my king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Heaven is wonderful. I look forward to it. Sometimes we on earth get homesick for heaven. I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I haven't figured it out, but I get homesick every once in a while for heaven. Friends will be there I have loved long ago. Joy like a river all around me will flow, yet just a smile from the Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. Jesus went 2,000 years ago to prepare that wonderful city called heaven. And there's no housing shortage there. An old black preacher who grew up in the slums and who was poor all of his life. His name was Brother Jackson. He was preaching one night. And he said, God's going to have a little cabin over there for me little cabin over in the corner of glory land. Somebody got up and said, Brother Jackson, you're wrong. You're going to have a great mansion over in the glory land. I don't think there are going to be any little cabins over there in heaven. There are going to be houses with plenty of rooms. That's what heaven will be like. The best thing about heaven, we're going to see Jesus, and we'll see him forever and forever and forever. And we'll look upon the one who died for us, And perhaps we'll even see the nail prints in his hands and the pierced mark in his side and the pointed crown thorns, all the scars they made on his brow. Heaven's going to be wonderful. And some say Jesus wept because he was going to call Lazarus back into this earth filled with its doubts and its questions and its sins and its shame and all the encumbrances that we have here, and Jesus wept. Others have said Jesus wept because he knew that many of the people standing around him would not be saved. They would have to go down to a terrible, tragic devil's hell. I want to tell you, hell is an awful place. Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter 16. He said, and in hell, that rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. 
And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in these flames. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime didst have good things, Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, there's a great gulf fixed between us and you so that they would pass from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would be come from you. You see what that's saying? Hell is a final place. When anybody goes to hell, they're never going to come back. Well, Lazarus didn't come back from hell. And some say Jesus wept because he knew that standing right around in that Bethany graveyard were some men and women and perhaps young people who would go out of this life into an endless, eternal separation from God in that awful place called hell. I wrote some things down, some reasons why preachers don't like to preach about hell. Number one, because it is a greatly misunderstood doctrine. Is hell a state of the mind or it is a real place? There's some people who say, well, hell's just a state of the mind. I've heard people say the hell is right here on earth. And there's no such thing as eternal hell, that all the hell you'll ever get is right here on earth, and there are plenty, plenty of people who have plenty of hell right here on the earth, and it's a, that's an awful thing. I'm, I'm sure that's true. There are lots of people that live in a living hell right here on this earth, but I want to tell you, it is nothing compared to the eternal hell that comes immediately after death. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. He was conscious. He remembered. He could even see the other world. And he was aware of pain and suffering. And he had a memory. And the voice from heaven said, Son, remember. And in hell, people remember. Hell is a misunderstood doctrine. Number two, because it is a terrible doctrine. Hell is an awful doctrine the awful place of hell, the awful horror of hell. Who wants to preach on that? Thirdly, because it is a Bible necessary doctrine. You must believe the Bible to believe there's a hell. If you have questions about hell, it's because you have questions about the Bible. And if you have questions about the Bible, it's easy to put a question mark about hell. And there are some people who don't want to preach on hell because they have a big question mark and they rationalize all that they can think of about hell. God is too good. God is too much like a Santa Claus to ever let anybody go to hell. And so they rationalize some kind of universalism that says after a while, everybody will finally get to heaven. And then... People, many preachers don't like to preach on hell because it is the hardest doctrine in the Bible to preach on. It's the easiest to let it slip. It strains one's heart. Who likes to think of an eternal separation from God? No preacher that I know is sadistic enough to enjoy thinking that people that are in his audience are one day going to spend eternity in hell. It's a horrible doctrine. It grips your heart. 
and it gives pain at the time of the invitation. And sometimes people who wonder why the preacher extends the invitation a little while maybe wonders because they have not come to grips with the awful, horrible doctrine of eternal separation from God called hell. There are men and women and boys and girls on their way to hell. There may be someone in this room tonight who has never been converted, never been regenerated, never been born again. Your sins are still upon you. You have never taken them to Calvary. You've never had the cleansing of the blood of Christ. And I want to tell you with all the pain in my soul, you're on your way to hell. And I don't like to talk about it, but that's right. That's what the Bible says. And all we know about hell is what we got it from Jesus. Just like all we know about heaven, we got it from Jesus. There's a fifth reason people do not like to preach on hell. It is offensive to some. I preached on this doctrine in a church some years ago where I was in a revival meeting, a very fashionable church. We had a good meeting, had a number of people saved. One dignified lady came by to me one night and said, I'm so glad I don't have to hear that preached all the time. I didn't really understand what she meant. I just listened. She said, I never hear that doctrine preached in my church. And I'm glad. And I want to tell you, the doctrine of hell is offensive to some. Some may go out and say, I wish our preacher wouldn't talk about hell so much. I want to apologize to you and to God for not talking about it more. Hell is an awful place not only for those who are going there, but for those who have let people slip through our fingers and go out into an eternal hell because we have done nothing to try to keep them out of hell. Jesus did everything. He left the glory. He left heaven. He went to the cross. He literally stood in the mouth of hell and he said, don't go to hell. Don't go to hell. And if you go to hell tonight, you'll go over the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth reason, many people do not understand the doctrine of God's holiness. And so they cannot understand anything about hell. They can't understand anybody going to hell because they do not understand that God is thrice holy, that He is righteous, that He is pure, and no sin can enter heaven. And hell is that doctrine that reminds us the only place for a man who will not repent who will not turn away from sin, who will not turn to God, who will not allow Christ to come in and be his sin bearer and his savior. The only place that he could ever be content for eternity would be in hell because he's rejected righteousness and love and God and the gospel invitation and heaven itself. And then there are many who do not understand the doctrine of God's love. And so they cannot understand hell. Listen, the only way we can understand God's love is to know what it cost God to keep you out of hell, Sean. You know what it cost him? The death of his only begotten son. That's what it cost God to keep you and me out of hell. That's love. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And it was God's love poured out at the cross that keeps you and me from hell. 
And this Bible teaches that immediately when you step from this earth without the saving blood of Jesus Christ applied to your soul, you go immediately to hell. There is no purgatory. There is no intermediate stage. So I was telling me the other day at the hospital, uh, they said, uh, they were talking about a loved one that was about to die, and they said, now, you know that God is so good that he, I know that this loved one's not a Christian, but you know God's not gonna let him go to hell. There's some in-between place, isn't there, preacher? Isn't there, preacher? Isn't there, preacher? And there's some intermediate place. And I didn't mean to be ruthless and hard with as much compassion and prayer and love and tears as I could give. I said, no, no, there's no intermediate place. It is appointed to men once to die, and after this, the judgment. A man, woman, boy, or girl who leaves this life without Jesus Christ goes to eternal hell immediately. And he's there until the great white throne judgment, and then God brings him up that he might see the compounded interest of all of his sins and all of his works, and then he's cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. That's hell. Some people say Jesus wept because he knew some of the people standing around there were going to have to go to hell because they wouldn't believe in Christ. And I want to tell you, There's nothing inside of anybody that's saved. There's nothing inside of anybody that's saved that would ever gloat over anybody going to hell. Just remember that. If anybody ever tells you to go to hell, you just mark it down. That man's not saved. He doesn't know anything what he's talking about. He's filled with the devil. Every child of God that I've ever known who cares about souls doesn't like to talk about a person going to hell. Not easy. And maybe that's the reason Jesus was weeping. Because he knew that some standing there at Lazarus' grave would be lost forever. You can decide why you think Jesus wept. But a very interesting thing happened. When Jesus finished weeping, he prayed. And then he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! He had been dead four days, came out of that grave. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. What a victory. What a triumph. Now somebody said, why in the world is that story in the Bible? That's a strange story. It's just the one plate, one time story. Matter of fact, it isn't even referred to again, except in the next chapter where it says, Lazarus was there at a supper that was made for Jesus. And it says, this is the Lazarus that was raised from the dead. But I don't know that it was ever referred to again. What, what was it, that story there for? And I'll be through when I tell you this. And you already know it. It's, I'm just reminding you of it. It is there to tell us that Jesus is Lord of life and of death. Jesus is in complete charge. When one of our loved ones dies, Jesus knows about it. And he weeps with you. When you go out to the graveyard and put a marker on the dear one of your heart, or you put some flowers there at memorial time or Christmas time, Jesus knows about that. He cares. Does Jesus care? Yes, Jesus cares. He knows all about it. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about it. 
And he taught us that, that story. He gave us that story to remind us, first of all, that Jesus is Lord of life and he's Lord of death. Secondly, to remind us that Jesus weeps with those who weep. There's never been a tear that's run down your eye, never been a tear in your heart that God didn't know about. As a matter of fact, the Word of God says that the Lord has a bottle that He collects your tears in. Isn't that beautiful? All your tears, they haven't been in vain. God has a bottle filled with your tears. But there's something else. Jesus taught us one day there's going to be a resurrection of those who are saved. I'm talking about a bodily resurrection. Now, if you read the 11th chapter of John carefully, you can recognize that this is not some kind of spiritual, spooky resurrection where just some spirit comes oozing out of the grave and moving around in some disembodied spirit and so on. Oh, no, no. It was Lazarus that came out, and everybody recognized that he was raised from the dead. It was the same Lazarus, and now he's alive again. And he goes over here in a little while, and he eats with these people. Now, there's a lot about this that I don't understand, and I want to assure you of that and underscore that quickly. But I know this. This scripture is teaching that there's going to be a bodily resurrection of those who sleep in Jesus. I might haste to say, I'm sure that Lazarus had to die again because Jesus was the first one to die, never to be raised from the dead, never to die again. But this is there as sort of a prophecy of what it's going to be like. Wouldn't you like to be at the graveyard when the Lord comes the second time and just all of a sudden there's going to be a resurrection? I don't know whether the graves will have to be uncovered or not. I've had, to, I've had arguments in my mind about that. I like those stories that show the graves all unshoveled and the caskets opened and there's nobody in them. I like that. And it may be the Lord will let that happen when he comes the second time so this old world will recognize that there are some empty caskets and empty graves around and that what the Bible said was true. I do not know for sure that that will happen because it was not necessary to open that grave for Jesus to get out of the grave but so the disciples could get in and find out that he wasn't there. But when Lazarus was raised from the grave, Jesus said, roll the stone away and let him out. Loose him and let him go. And so it could be that when the resurrection comes, when this earth has grown darker and darker and darker, and the armies of the world are encompassing around Jerusalem, and this world is right on the threshold of the great tribulation, and the Antichrist is about to take over the reins of government, Jesus will come. And those who know him will be caught up together, be with him in the clouds, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. And I want to tell you, we're going to have a new body. A new body. We're going to throw our crutches away, throw our glasses away, throw our wigs away, throw our false teeth away and all that. We're going to have a brand new body. And we're going to have a glorified body like Jesus' glorified body. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus ate with the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I don't understand that, but the song says Jesus himself will gird himself and serve us in that resurrection time. And this scripture says that death does not hold permanently those that we give to the grave. Just temporary. 
Now their spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord or the spirit goes immediately to be in hell. But at the time when Jesus shall come and what happened at Bethany graveyard was just a little prophecy of all that, Jesus came. Now I want you to notice before Jesus came, everybody was, was lonely. Before Jesus came, they thought death had really gotten Lazarus. Before Jesus came, Mary and Martha, even though they knew the Lord, they said, Lord, if you'd been here, that wouldn't have happened. They didn't extend their faith on out to say, if he's here, there'll be something new happen. <coughs> they, were, they were defeated. They were discouraged. That's the way we are. We go out to the graveyards and we lay our dead away. And <coughs> no matter how much we believe and, and we read the word, and, but we turn from that lonely place and there's a, there's a, a numbness inside and we think, yes, death, death is caught up again and death has our loved one and we'll keep him in its grip. But all has changed when Jesus comes. Everything has changed when Jesus comes. And I want to ask you, do you have faith in Jesus? I'm not talking about necessarily do you have faith in the resurrection. I believe we'll have the resurrection, but that's all dependent on what you believe about Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus has the power to wash your tears away? Do you believe that Jesus has the authority and the power to move in on your life and say, look at here, young lady, look at here, young man, look at here, old man, old woman. Don't you sit there and be gloomy and all disturbed because your loved one's been taken away in death. Get busy doing something for God. I'm taking good care of your loved one, and one day there's going to be a resurrection. And I'll be taking care of that too, and you'll see your loved one again. I look forward to that. Grandpa, Grandma, Daddy, others, be there. Now, I know that it hurts, and I know that there's numbness, but the Word of God teaches us that we do not have to be faithless like Mary and Martha. Even as precious as those two ladies were, one was always cooking, and the other was always studying the Bible, sitting at Jesus' feet. And yet when death came to Lazarus, they both were hurt, and numb and defeated and discouraged. And they said, Lord, hey, Lord, Lord, where are you? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Have you ever said that? Have you ever thought that? Lord, where are you? If you had been here, surely my loved one wouldn't have been taken in death. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But death cannot keep its prey. Death is not going to be victor. The Bible says... That death is the last enemy. And one day, the Lord's going to put it under his feet and it will be discarded forever. And there will be no more death in God's wonderful city. Do you have that faith in your heart? Do you have Jesus living in your heart? Is there that vibrant triumph that knows that he's in charge? Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank thee for the truths from the Bible about the resurrection and about the Lord Jesus being in charge of life and of death. We know that in this room tonight are some people who have been defeated. They've been discouraged. The one that meant meaning to their human pilgrimage was taken away. Maybe a child, maybe a husband or a wife. And they've wondered, but Lord, I... We pray tonight. We just ask you earnestly to fill up those missing places 
and fill God's people with God's hope tonight as we recognize that death is not in charge. Death is not victory. Death is swallowed up in life and that Jesus is in charge. We pray that somebody here would put his trust and faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. May we stand, please. Come every soul by sin oppressed. Sin is an oppressive thing. Listen to that song. Sin is so oppressive. It holds you in bondage. It defeats you. I'm not talking about just the big, big sins that the world calls big sins. I'm talking about any sin. Whether it's a little lie, or depression, or discouragement, or doubt, or giving way to the things that, oh, little habits, little petty things. Sin is a bondage that tries to fasten itself on you and keep you down. Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. While we sing that stanza, that song, is there somebody here tonight who would come and say, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want to trust our Lord as my personal Savior. God help you to do that. While we wait, while we pray, while we sing. And if any Christian here has heard God's voice and you need to come with some other commitment, will you come while we sing?